Good morning and welcome to Funny Paper. I'm Brian Curtis. While we look at business and finance here on the program and people trying to get money for nothing. In the headlines, China loosens up the money supply. Hong Kong Stock Exchange says investors will face restrictions trying to sell Shanghai shares. And the financial secretary says Hong Kong could face a perfect storm. He says we could be vulnerable to international financial speculators. He expressed his worries that such political uncertainty, coupled with many risk factors, such as a slowing economy and rising unemployment rate, could provide international speculators a chance to target the local market. And that, he said, may lead to catastrophic results. That's Damon Pang reporting on the comments by the financial secretary. Alan Leung from the Civic Party is not buying the FS's concerns. It's another attempt to fear manga. What he tries to do is to blame it on our crave for democracy. The financial secretary's comments were directed at Occupy Central and how damaging, in his view, the disobedience campaign might be. So we'll look at that in just a few minutes. Elsewhere, what were investors getting up to? But there are $7.1 billion that were withdrawn from junk bond mutual funds in the past week. $7.1 billion. And people are kind of scratching their heads. They don't understand why. Well, that was one of the things that featured last week. Actually, a recovery from the uh, strong selling in the markets also occurred, particularly at the end of the week, and we saw Wall Street higher. In Asia this morning, markets are moving up as well. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up about a fifth of a percent. In Seoul, the Kospi is up about four-fifths of one percent, a 16-point gain to 2047. And Japanese futures were much higher, 200 points higher. It takes a few minutes before we get the cash read. I'll give that to you in a few minutes. Dollar yen, 102.13, so that's the dollar stronger against the yen. The euro, 1.34 U.S. dollars. Okay, so coming up on the program, in terms of the guests, we'll have our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. We'll also be looking at the chilly climate in the due diligence community in China after Friday's jailing. More on that a bit later. And Paul Gillis from Peking University will be joining us. We'll also be talking about crowdfunding with Marianne Hui from Fringe Backer. Well, the financial secretary, John Jong, says we face a perfect storm here financially. He says political uncertainties could cause external issues, a slowdown in economic growth and big capital outflows. RTHK's Damon Pang reports. Mr. Zhang's comments came amid a deep division within the community between those who support and oppose the Occupy Central movement, as more than a million people had expressed their views over the past few weeks on whether to use the civil disobedience campaign as a way to fight for genuine universal suffrage. Writing in his weekly blog, Mr. Zhang said while people may have different views on the matter, both sides have their own valid arguments that warrant affirmation and respect. Mr. Zhang said the outcome of the political reform, be it a step forward or a standstill, would have considerable effects on Hong Kong's economy and financial markets. He expressed his worries that such political uncertainty, coupled with many risk factors, such as a slowing economy and rising unemployment rate, could provide international speculators a chance to target the local market. And that, he said, may lead to catastrophic results. Damon Pang reporting. The financial secretary says outflows in a short period of time would shake local interest rates as well as stock and property markets here. Meantime, China has loosened monetary conditions further. In the past quarter, conditions were eased at the fastest pace in about two years. A new Bloomberg gauge tracking this shows it's the biggest jump since the July through September period in 2012. New yuan loans in July 
July will be seen at a record high for that month, according to an analyst survey. Citi says the central bank worries more about inflation and financial risks, but the government is worried more about growth and employment. Well, investors sold sold off junk bonds over the past two weeks. We get more now from Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz. But there are $7.1 billion that were withdrawn from junk bond mutual funds in the past week. $7.1 billion. That compares to the second highest amount, like the last record of $4.6 billion of withdrawals. This is an incredible amount of money. And people are kind of scratching their heads. They don't understand why. She says it is a little perplexing. And right now, there isn't the taper tantrum that you saw last year, where a concern that rising rates, quickly rising rates, would lead to massive declines in bonds, prompting investors to pull money from all sorts of debt, investment grade, treasuries. Now they're piling into treasuries. Even so, she says there are plenty of institutional buyers. And you know, there are institutional buyers on the other side of this because you're not seeing a tremendous drop. I mean, you are seeing some decline, mm-hmm. but it's not even as big as last year's. Uh, and it's partly buffered by, by Treasury yields uh, getting lower and, and, the, and the prices rising there. But even still, you would expect the, the sell-off to be steeper. And there are buyers on the other side because fundamentally nothing's changed. You have a U.S. economy that seems to be improving. But, you know, in fairness, Janet Yellen, Fed chair, did come out and say the one spot she's seeing froth is in the junk, credit market. Leverage loans. Right. Leverage yes. loans, junk bonds. Exactly. So, you know, there's, there's potentially some selling in response to that. Yeah. Lisa Abramowitz there from Bloomberg. Gold is trading just 50 cents higher this morning, $1,309.40 an ounce, and oil prices are slightly down. Brent crude down 12 cents to 104.90. We say good morning now to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Good day to you, Barry. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, I just wanted to slip that uh, junk bonds thing in there uh, just to remind people that we did have a lot of selling uh, here in the past 10 days, two weeks, uh, and not only stocks, but um, high yield got hit pretty sharply. Uh, Now, things did calm down quite a bit on Friday. It seems that uh, Ukraine has, has eased a little bit, the tensions there. How do you see this week shaping up? Well, I think this is a tough one. Um, some of things are um, just plain important, and we can really not be terribly optimistic. For example, we've got Walmart reporting earnings. Everyone expects their earnings to be down because they've reported that people just aren't shopping, and the ones who are not shopping are the poorest people in the society. So that's coming. We've got pennies, and we've got uh, also Priceline reporting. But You know, maybe it's retail sales because the consumer has got to pick up. And I think the consensus estimate is about two-tenths of one percent up. That would be the same as the previous month. But uh, I agree with what you just said about the importance of junk bonds, the anomaly that we're finding that U.S. 10-year treasuries are seeing a lower interest rate. I don't have an answer to that. And certainly what's happening in uh, junk bond yields and the withdrawal of cash is worrisome. Well, even that reporter said, you know, we may see a real change in this because we've had this kind of scare several times in the past few years when when Ben Bernanke first uh, issued his taper uh, comments in May of of a year ago. um, You know, that caused a a big rush out of uh, junk bonds and also out of um, lots of stocks, particularly uh, utility stocks and high yielding ones. uh, And, you know, it may come back to normal. Uh, It looked like we were 
in the middle of a big correction last week, but now it you know it doesn't seem so sure. <laughs> That's true, Brian. It's amazing what a day can bring because Friday was a big turnaround day. And as you say, the high-yield sector, those prices recovered. You know, high-yield tends to move with the inversely to the 10-year. And uh, so, yes, there was a nice recovery. Europe, on the other hand, was down very sharply. And I think one has to worry about Europe because they are obviously hit by the new Russian sanctions. There's more to come. But the market was up here in the States in large part because there are signals from the Kremlin that Putin wants some kind of cessation, some kind of deal. Now, that might be nothing more than a smoke signal, but the market played on it Friday, and let's hope there's a follow-through. What sort of deal could you envision? Well, I think uh, he has to make some arrangement with the new authorities in Kiev, because clearly... What we've seen this past week, Brian, I think really going back a couple weeks, is that the Russian rebels, or the Ukrainian rebels, in fact, they seem to be Russian, they're losing. And the, 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 the spine of the Ukrainian military seems to have been stiffened. They're winning. And that means that uh, Putin has a very awkward choice. He could either send Russian troops across, which would have, I think, a very devastating effect on his own economy, certainly his financial markets and the European financial markets, or he can try to make a deal. After all, Ukraine is in flux because they've got elections coming and they've got a different leadership. I think that Mr. Putin wants a relationship with uh, Mr. Poroshenko, the new president. So I hope there's going to be a de-escalation. So with the Ukrainian military looking a bit stronger, what seemed perhaps an obvious solution last week now doesn't look so um, so likely because um, the military is is starting to get the upper hand. And, and when I say what seemed a possible solution would be that Russia doesn't want Ukraine in NATO and the EU, if Ukraine would take a more neutral stance and um, and promise not to join either of those two, then perhaps the Russians would pull back. There would be some uh, safety regime put in for all the Russians that live in places like Donetsk. There's millions there. Uh, and that, um, you know, perhaps a, a kind of detente could be achieved. Yes, I think that's exactly it. Look, Russia got Crimea. That's a fight accompli. And if Russia escalates, they're going to be thrown out of the G20, not just the G8. And I don't think Russia wants that. Putin wants to be part of the globalized system. Look at the BRICS, for example, the new financial stability arrangement, the new BRICS bank. He doesn't want to jeopardize all of that. So I hope that this suggests that, just as you have laid out, that Putin sees that negotiation with an awkward, but at least some kind of open relationship with Ukraine, and indeed Ukraine's not going to come into NATO, is his best option. So back to the economy. About two weeks ago, it looked like we had an interest rate scare. It does not look to be that way now. It looks as though wages in the United States um, are inching forward, not not uh, climbing sharply. Therefore, it's sort of steady as she goes. Uh, do you expect that a lot of these concerns will be to the back burner now? Well, I do. I think that it is interesting to see that... Um uh, the, the big anomaly has to be, Brian, that the tenure is back to 2.43%. 
and we've got the dollar trading at $1.34 to the euro. So this really does reflect that once again, Europe is the weak part of these triangular global economy in terms of economic clout, Asia, North America, Europe. Europe is the weak one. And I think that there could be further weakening. They're all going to go on vacation now. It's August. But I think here in the States, things look pretty good. You know, we are tightening. We are tightening monetary policy by pulling away the, uh, the asset purchases. And I think that's in the market. You know, a few weeks ago, as you say, we worried about that. But I think maybe there's a yeah, I'm sounding like an optimist again, Brian, but I do think that there may be a sense that financial markets see more confidence in this slow, steady growth. Job creation is good, and there's a no sense of panic from all of these geopolitical catastrophes. Yes, politically, um, you know, Gaza hasn't had uh, a big effect on markets. Uh, if Russia has truly ended its military exercises on the Ukrainian border, and if those troops pull back a bit, then uh, it does seem like the green light is on after, you know, a red light was flashing uh, pretty sharply uh, last week. Um, let me ask you about an issue that came to the fore um, quite uh, strongly over the past six months, and that is the gap between rich and poor seems like it's eased off a little bit um what can you say about that well certainly there's far less discussion when mr piketty was so hot with his book on income inequality but um you know look look at silicon valley i mean these this is where you really find the gap you it's very hard to live in san francisco if you're a bus driver it's very hard to live there if you're a school teacher and yet uh, this is where the boom is there is going to be income inequality and by the way most people are voting democratic out there so I think that it certainly has faded from the public debate. Whether it's gotten better, I rather doubt it. But uh, it'll come again. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times about a month ago that said, while it's true that a lot of the OECD countries uh, have seen uh, a gap between rich and poor, that because of the Internet and because of globalization, globally... It's a different story that many people have been pulled out of poverty, particularly in places like India and China and elsewhere in the emerging markets. And that um, if you really stand back and look at the global picture, you might say that the world is in better shape if the OECD and its inhabitants are not. Well, I think it's true. I mean, you are speaking and your your listeners are on the edge of the greatest economic success story in decades. And when you've got 600 million people pulled out of poverty, obviously you're going to have some vast income inequality in China, a society that under communism didn't really have much income inequality. So I think in many ways it's the wrong target. And what's happening in the OECD, you know, they're just sort of puttering along, all of those 24 or 28 countries now in it. But I think as an issue, it is fading, and I think it's uh, rather good that it is. Okay, Barry, let's close it there. Um, always good to end on a fairly positive note. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Barry Wood, RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, bringing the time to 18 minutes after 8 o'clock.
just joined this, uh, mentioned that there seems to be a more positive glow in markets, if that's your thing this morning. Uh, most of the Asian markets are up pretty sharply between about a half of a percent and one percent. And we'll keep you posted uh, as the program ensues. Well, let's take a look at um, what's happening with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and it's a featured story for us a bit later. The Stock Exchange says that investors will face restrictions on selling Shanghai shares after the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect starts. They'll need to transfer the stock to a broker before trading starts on that day. So the chairman, Charles Lee, wrote on his blog that shares would need to be transferred prior to 7.30 in the morning on the day that investors would want to execute the trade. So... This is all in anticipation of the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect, which will likely start in October. And we'll have more on this with Chris Oliver at 845. Well, the Shanghai number one intermediate people's court tried Britain, Peter Humphrey and his American wife, Yu Ying Zheng, and found both of them guilty of illegally obtaining private information. And so the two will be jailed. Uh, PM or rather Mr. Humphrey received a two and a half year sentence and a fine of 200,000 yuan. And just a few minutes after that, Ms. Yu learned that she would spend two years in prison and pay a fine of 150,000 renminbi. And Mr. Humphrey will be deported at the end of his term. So it has made the due diligence community quite nervous in China. To hear more, we're joined by Paul Gillis, a tax expert and professor of the Guanghua School of Management at Peking University. Mr. Gillis, good morning. Good morning. Is that right? Is that sending a bit of a chill among investigators who, who do these sorts of investigations on behalf of multinationals looking to do business in China? Yes, I, I think this decision was obviously quite unfortunate for Peter Humphrey and his wife, but uh, it also is a real challenge for uh, multinational businesses that um, uh, that are trying to do business in China because the access to due diligence information um, is, is, is getting much more difficult in China. Yes, we've seen in the... Uh, well, Go ahead. Well, you know, what we see is that uh, what Peter Humphrey was was accused or convicted of doing was getting private information about Chinese people uh, that you're not supposed to have. And uh, that has been fairly routine for uh, for those that are investigating business opportunities in China uh, to try to find information that's not publicly available, uh, often is publicly available in other countries. And uh, China has looked the other way for a long time on this, but now it appears to be, to be cracking down. And it's certainly making it quite dangerous for anyone who, who wants to work in the, in the due diligence space. Do you think that this will just cause people to be more careful about the information they access? Or do you think that it will actually slow down business and drive some big companies away? Well, a little bit of both. I think that, uh, you know, if you're trying to be a foreign private investigator in China, you just can't do that. And some of the old China hands, uh, like Humphreys, who, who made a, a good living uh, doing private investigation work and serving as a bridge between Chinese people who can do that kind of work and foreigners who need information uh, had a pretty successful business going, but that's just not going to be able to continue. Uh, that's just not a viable option because it's, it's out of bounds. And, and I think increasingly trying to operate a business that's outside the legal bounds in China is, uh, is very dangerous. Um, on the other side, foreign companies that uh, are, are going to have to take greater risk because they're not going to necessarily know the details of who they're getting into uh, business with. 
and undoubtedly some people are going to get burned. You say it's very difficult for foreigners. Um, does that mean that um, local mainland citizens will pick up the slack a little bit? I think they'll try to. The problem has always been a question of trust and, and of communications. Um, the, uh, you know, you know, I think a lot of foreign companies like to have a foreigner who has a really intimate knowledge of the turf in China uh, to, to lead that for them. Uh, because they understand and can communicate better on both on both sides, they they, they can work more effectively. I think uh, more companies are going to be directed to work directly with uh, with Chinese service providers in this area, who are going to have a little more latitude, I think, than foreigners uh, to do things. In any way, has this been mentioned in any of the reform talk about um, making this um, more transparent, so that it would be easier for companies to operate? Well, in some sense, China has reformed some things. Uh, a lot of the corporate records that uh, for, for a long time were available um, through backdoor channels, such as the ones that Peter Humphreys was accused of, of working, um, they were completely shut down, uh, particularly after the New York Times investigation that revealed that some of the uh, leaders had significant wealth. Uh, but they have reopened in a different way. Now they're accessible on a website to anybody, and it really is, is much more accessible. Uh, the, the information you get is limited, but what is available has become more accessible. So I think China will try to balance that, having enough information out there for people to do uh, uh, a reasonable uh, due diligence and background checks, uh, but not to uh, uh, allow foreigners to poke around in, in what China might view as secrets. Is it likely that Mr. Humphrey will not serve that long of a sentence in actuality and that he'll be deported fairly soon? I'm sure, I'm sure that's what he hopes for. And uh, the, uh, uh, you know, I think that's happened in, in past cases. It, uh, it, it, I don't really, uh, the politics of that, I'm sure, will be between Britain and the United States, uh, Britain, the United States and, uh, and China to try to, uh, uh, to get him out of the country and his wife out of the country faster. Uh, do you think that, that it would happen at the same time? His American wife is obviously Chinese, uh, Yu Yingzheng. Uh, is, it, is it likely that they would be treated in the same way and would be released together, or that maybe she would stay in prison longer? Well, you know, she's got, she got a less of a sentence. She only got two years instead of two and a half years. Not very much difference, but something symbolic there. And then, uh, well, the, the thing is, is that sometimes the Chinese authorities treat their own more harshly than foreigners. Yes, exactly. And then she got, uh, she's, but she's not being deported. And, and during the trial, they talked about the fact that she never even went to America until sometime in her 20s. Her father was a prominent professor, and so it seems like she's getting some special treatment here. Not not significant, but some minor treatment. Um, although I don't know if, you know, I, I would expect she doesn't want to stay in China if her husband's being deported. Um, so I expect she would probably want to leave at the... Uh, at the same time, um, I would imagine it'll be they'll stay in prison for at least a few months and then quietly they may uh, they may just be repatriated. There are many lines to the investigation into GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, this was separate, yeah. separate from the actual investigation into the company and also into uh, the former chief um, who was also being investigated for um, some peccadillos. Um, can you tell us where we are with those stories? Yeah, what uh, what happened apparently was that uh, there was a sex tape of the former CEO of GlaxoSmithKline in China and his girlfriend uh, that made its way to the board of uh, 
GlaxoSmithKline, and they uh, uh, then launched an investigation to try to determine who leaked this video, who might have placed the camera in his apartment, that sort of thing. And that's what uh, Peter Humphrey was hired to do. Um, at the same time, they were getting ready to deal with all of these allegations of bribery uh, that they are facing in China for, for bribing doctors. Um, and uh, those two things, are, you know, in a sense, are not really connected. Uh, but it turns out the focus of the Humphrey investigation was on somebody who um, is fairly well-connected or maybe very well-connected in the Chinese government, and he wasn't aware of that. He wasn't aware of these bribery allegations. So Peter Humphrey and his son have been quite vocal about that they feel like GSK threw them under the bus uh, because they didn't tell them all of the things that were going on and that uh, he would have done his investigation differently if he had known there were other problems. Yeah. Okay. Well, very interesting. Uh, thanks very much for joining us, uh, Mr. Gillis, here on Money for Nothing in Hong Kong, and we hope to, to talk again soon. Paul Gillis, a tax expert and professor of, of um, management at the Guanghua School of Management. The time is now 28 minutes after 8 o'clock, and we'll continue with the program right after this. It was a brutal schedule, and yeah, I'm still in Les Miserables mode. The number of bands that have applied to play at this festival was almost 100 bands wanting to play. They don't apologize for the fact that they know an ABBA song's going to come along. They're all making their voices heard on the brew. You have young people dressing you know, in bikinis and swimming suits. Overdo the water. It becomes a mush. Musicians, actors, writers, regular contributors from VIPs, visiting the city. Yes, my first time in Hong Kong and I'm loving it. Interesting people found lost in the corridor. I love it just passing through. Just kidding. You're on the air. Local happenings, current affairs, and yes, even cookery. Let's start with a you know, decent quality of you know, butter. See, if I go shopping for flour, I buy flour. It's all on the Morning Brew with Phil Whelan. Weekdays on RTHK Radio 3. And I think we should stress this. None of this is to do with politics. None whatsoever. Good morning to you. The news coming up shortly, but let's bring you up to date on markets. The Nikkei up 246. That's a big gain, 1.7% in early trading, 15,024. Australia is higher as well, three quarters of a percent, and the Caspian Sol is up about half a percent. Not much change in the price of oil, right around $105 a barrel, and gold is now $1,307.60. That's down about $1.30. Sunshine expected today in the weather with a few showers, isolated thunderstorms in the afternoon, maximum temperature. Temperature about 32 degrees. And the outlook for the next few days, showers expected. Thunderstorms will be um, around for the next couple of days. This is Money for Nothing. Morning Brew coming up at 9 o'clock, and we have another half hour of the program with Backchat on its summer break. We'll be looking at money and politics in the second half of the program. And we'll also be talking a little bit about crowdfunding. You know, a week ago, we told you an interesting story about a small startup that raised more than a million U.S. dollars. And today we have a look at Fringebacker with Marianne Hui, the executive director of Fringebacker, joining us a little bit later on the show. But for the moment, more in news here on Radio 3. And here's Samantha Butler. 
The man behind the campaign to oust Law Society President Ambrose Lamb says he expects his vote on Thursday to fail. Law Society member Kevin Yam says there's been a systematic effort by Mr Lamb's supporters and Chinese entities to gather proxy votes against his resolution. Mr Lamb has been under fire since backing Beijing's contentious white paper, asserting its authority over Hong Kong. Speaking to RTHK this morning, Mr Yam said the proxy vote system was open to abuse because of the hierarchy within the law profession. As to whether it's a majority vote or not, I think the main point here is that we've got a system here with the proxies where it's open to abuse because the legal profession is a fairly hierarchical profession. If your client, if your boss comes up to you and say, give me a proxy uh, to vote against the resolution, I think you'll find that a lot of employee solicitors will find it very difficult to resist that. So it's not a simple matter of democracy. A new 72-hour ceasefire in Gaza has formally come into effect following an argument, uh, agreement earlier in the day between Israel and the Palestinian factions. The BBC's Lise Doucette reports from Jerusalem. Well, every time a temporary truce begins, there's great caution, great scepticism of whether or not it will hold. So Israel has said it will wait till the morning to see if this ceasefire has not been broken. If it's still holding, then it will send its delegation back to resume these talks in Cairo. Now, just remember, these are indirect talks. Hamas and Israel don't talk to each other, don't accept each other. Both have made it clear they're not willing to accept the maximum that each side is now demanding. The question is whether there's a minimum somewhere in there. Now, Hamas is already saying that this is the, the last chance for talks, but it's widely believed that both sides would like to bring this war to an end. Kurdish forces in northern Iraq say they've taken back two towns from Islamic State militants with the help of United States aerial support. Nonetheless, the State Department says in a change of policy, some American diplomats and oil workers are being relocated. From Washington, the BBC's David Willis reports. President Obama said last week that the prime objective of U.S. airstrikes on Iraq was to protect the hundreds of Americans working either in the U.S. consulate in Erbil or with local oil companies. Asked on Friday why the State Department didn't simply evacuate the diplomatic and military personnel who worked there, White House spokesman Josh Earnest said the preference was to protect the premises and keep the staff working. Now it seems that view has changed. The State Department announcing that a limited number of staff, both from Erbil and the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, were being moved either to Basra in southern Iraq or the Jordanian capital Amman. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. In business and financial news, top stories this morning include these. China loosens up the money supply. Hong Kong Stock Exchange says investors will face restrictions trying to sell Shanghai shares. And a financial secretary wrote on his blog yesterday that Hong Kong could face a perfect financial storm. He said that we could be vulnerable to international financial speculators, particularly if Occupy Central goes ahead. So those would be some of the stories that we 
may look at a little bit later in this half hour. But now to other news. Kurdish forces supported by American airstrikes appear to have halted the advance of Islamic State militants in northern Iraq. The U.S. Central Command says attacks by warplanes and unmanned drones have destroyed armored vehicles on the approach to the Kurdish capital, Erbil. Over the weekend, the U.S. also hit the militants near Mount Sinjar, where Iraq's Yazidi minority have fled, trying to escape the advancing jihadists. At a news conference with the French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabieux, the president of the autonomous Kurdistan region, Masoud Barsani, said that Kurdish Peshmerga fighters would fight their own war, but did need some outside help. This is our war, and we will fight that war ourselves. So what we are asking our friends to do is to provide support and to cooperate with us in providing the necessary weapons so that we would be able to defeat these terrorist groups. In terms of airstrikes and air support, to the extent that it's needed, we would welcome the airstrikes and air support. Eyewitnesses in northwestern Iraq say that as many as 20,000 displaced people trapped on Mount Sinjar by the Islamic State have now escaped to safer areas. Eliza Rubin of the New York Times has spent the past day at a crossing point between Iraq and Syria, where she witnessed many members of Iraq's minority Yazidi community coming down from Mount Sinjar. I'm sure I've seen several several thousand cross over the last couple of days. We're hearing estimates as high as 20,000 or more. There's an area of the mountain where a Yazidi fighter or Yazidi fighters are fighting and are trying to, uh, are contacting uh, Yazidis and getting them to that area. And from there, they are directed down the mountain and the Syrian Peshmerga are helping them get the rest of the way and are securing the path. Eliza Rubin from the New York Times. A clinical trial of an experimental vaccine against Ebola is set to start shortly. GlaxoSmithKline says the vaccine is due to enter phase one testing in humans pending approval from U.S. authorities. The British drug maker is co-developing the product with U.S. scientists. But even if it is fast-tracked, a new vaccine will not be ready for widespread use before next year. There's currently no proven cure or vaccine to prevent the spread of the deadly virus. The virus has prompted the WHO to declare an international health emergency. Hong Kong has come through its first Ebola scare. The Center for Health Protection says that a 32-year-old man from Nigeria, suspected of having the deadly virus, has tested negative at Princess Margaret Hospital. Robert Kemp has more. On Saturday, the patient, who had been staying at a guest house in Chongqing Mansions in Chimsa Choi, went down with diarrhoea and vomiting, but no fever. He attended the accident and emergency department of Queen Elizabeth Hospital on Sunday and was transferred to Princess Margaret Hospital for treatment under isolation. Initial investigations by the CHP revealed that the patient had travelled from Lagos in Nigeria to Hong Kong on August the 7th, transiting in Dubai. In the past month, he had not visited any of the three West African countries, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, which have been hit hard by the outbreak, which the World Health Organization has described as a global emergency and the worst in four decades. He also had no contact history with sick persons or animals and did not visit healthcare facilities. The disease is fatal in 50 to 90% of cases and the incubation period is between 2 and 21 days, but usually between 5 and 7 days. The man is currently in stable condition.
Robert Kemp. The Law Society is set to vote this week on a motion of no confidence in its president, Ambrose Lam. The ballot comes after Mr. Lam backed Beijing's contentious white paper asserting its authority over Hong Kong. That prompted Law Society member Kevin Yam to initiate a petition against the president. Our Hugh Chiverton asked Mr. Yam why he wants this vote. We want this vote because of three things. One, because we feel very strongly about the legal profession's role in defending unequivocally uh, judicial independence and the rule of law, uh, especially uh, in the context of the white paper recently. Secondly, uh, we believe very strongly in the maintenance of political neutrality by the law society, which has been breached time and again by the current president. And thirdly, uh, we believe in upholding law society uh, internal due process in coming up with the law society's positions on matters of public importance and not just have someone uh, mouthing off at things. You say you're interested in in political uh, neutrality, but surely this is politically motivated. Well, politically motivated in what way? You don't like his politics. You have different politics to Mr Lamb. Well, no, on the contrary. I mean, if we look at uh, the immediate past president, Sadita Yi, he was a member of the Guangdong People's Consultative Conference, and no one had an issue with that, because whenever he was making comments uh, whilst he was Law Society president, uh, no one, uh, he, he, he was always careful to maintain political neutrality in what he said. So it's not about his politics. Uh, is your concern actually with the professional capabilities of, of, uh, of Ambrose Lamb? If you're talking about his private practice as a lawyer, I know nothing about that. So, so it's not about his uh, professional practice in that sense, no. Um, or his or his role in the in the law society in, in the in running the law society. Well, we are simply concerned. That, that he had on a number of occasions, uh, and of which uh, the occasions in June were really the last straw, d- d- during which he had breached political neutrality of the law society by making blatantly political statements on a number of highly contentious issues. Uh, we, we've heard about uh, efforts by uh, the supporters of uh, Ambrose Lamb to, uh, to rally round. Would you expect the vote to be tight uh, at the EGM? Well, we really don't know how the the vote is uh, going to end up because on on our side, uh, at the very least, there is no sort of systematic attempt to try and gather proxies. All we can do is to try and uh, gather support by uh, word of mouth uh, amongst our supporters. Uh, What we can say is that uh, we have no expectation of the uh, three resolutions in the extraordinary general meeting getting up because um, because we simply cannot match the systematic vote-gathering efforts of the other side. Are you saying you expect to lose? Yes, yes. We have no... We've said that from the outset, that we have no expectation of the resolutions getting up. That's Kevin Yam, a member of the Law Society, uh, speaking with Hugh Chiverton on Hong Kong Today. The financial secretary has warned that political uncertainty here may increase the risk of Hong Kong being hit by what he called a perfect financial storm. The financial secretary, John Jung, called on the public to respect each other and to stop pointing fingers at people with opposite views. RTHK's Damon Pang reports. 
Mr Zhang's comments came amid a deep division within the community between those who support and oppose the Occupy Central movement, as more than a million people had expressed their views in campaigns on the civil disobedience movement over the past few weeks. Writing in his weekly blog, Mr Zhang urged those who are considering to take to the streets to fight for universal suffrage to think twice. He said such action would unlikely to help forge a consensus on the electoral method for the chief executive elections in 2017. Mr Zhang said the outcome of the political reform, be it a step forward or a standstill, would have considerable effects on the territory's economy and financial markets. He expressed his worries that such political uncertainty could provide international speculators a chance to target the local market, which he said may lead to catastrophic results. Pacific Party leader Alan Leung hit back at the comments. He accused the financial secretary of fear-mongering. If every ingredient of our economy is not doing well, then of course you will have to revise the forecast. What he tries to do is to blame it on our crave for democracy. Let me remind the people of Hong Kong that Mr. Kam of North Korea was returned by universal suffrage. One man, one vote. And he got almost 100% of the votes cast. I don't want today's North Korea to be tomorrow's Hong Kong. Alan Leung. The head of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, has again appealed for more time for Hong Kong people to reach consensus on electing the chief executive in 2017. Ms. Lau was speaking after a meeting yesterday at which the party affirmed that its lawmakers would definitely vote against any reform proposal that doesn't meet international standards. Ms. Lau also warned that the Democratic Party would take part in the Occupy Central campaign if voters are denied a genuine choice in the election. If Beijing closes all the doors to universal suffrage. That would be the signal to have a full-fledged Occupy Central campaign. But if Beijing makes certain decisions which make some groups feel very unhappy, there may be sporadic demonstrations. And so what we want is for Beijing to pause and give the Hong Kong people room to discuss and to reach a consensus on universal suffrage. Ms. Lau's call came after a survey published last week showed that about two-thirds of respondents supported the idea of reaching a consensus on 2017. Mike Weeks asked Baptist University Professor Michael DeGolier if the Democratic Party had taken note of the poll, which was carried out by Lingnan University. Well, yeah, but what we have, at least uh, the, the rumor is, that uh, the NPC will be putting out some sort of paper uh, response, uh, which would basically give us the... The, the outer limits, the, the parameters of, of the reforms that we could propose uh, in just a couple of weeks. And uh, that, of course, very much is very likely to intervene in the middle of what seems to be a kind of a mini-trend uh, towards trying to develop some sort of, uh, of compromise uh, among the various parties, because certainly polarization is quite clear right now. Uh, so right in the middle of all this uh, possible chance of moving towards more of a consensus, uh, it will be the NPC action. And that, of course, is more more than likely to overwhelm uh, any of this uh, mini-movement towards reaching some sort of agreement. That poll that we talked uh, that I talked about also found that uh, over half, 55 percent of respondents, wanted the CE to be elected by universal suffrage in 2017, even if the nomination 
process is unsatisfactory. Is that something that, uh, you know, the Democrats, the pan-Democrats and Occupy Central need to take note of? Well, I, I think it's very clear. Uh, when you look at public opinion across the board, uh, even in the, in the so-called loyalist camp, uh, there's a recognition that the, the current system, uh, not just the executive system, but also, also the legislative system, um, is it, flawed. Uh, our, our elections are flawed. Our representative system is flawed. Our, our leadership has certainly not been of the highest standard uh, since 1997, and, and we've not made enough fundamental changes in our system to really uh, improve our leadership issues. So it's, it's clearly now, I think, people recognize that it's a, it's a structural issue. It's not a matter of, of uh, personalities and characters uh, who occupy the chief executive office or, or who are in LegCo. So it has to be fixed uh, structurally uh, with changes. And I think that's why people are saying, well, it, it may not be perfect, um, but at least it would be an improvement over what we have. And certainly, of course, I don't think anybody, uh, I've not seen any proposal <clears throat> that even gets close to proposing something like uh, North Korea has. Uh, North Korea, you're required to vote. Your vote is not secret. And there's only one candidate on the ballot, period, one candidate allowed to put forward for nomination. Uh, so that's, that's uh, we're, we're, uh, everything I've seen is quite a, quite a distance from that kind of proposal. Professor Michael DeGolier from Baptist University's Government and International Studies Department speaking earlier on Hong Kong Today. The time is now 12 and a half minutes before 9 o'clock. This is Money for Nothing. Well, as you mentioned earlier, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange says investors will face some restrictions on selling Shanghai shares after the Hong Kong Shanghai Connect starts. Many people are quite anticipating uh, the beginning of this scheme. Uh, Chairman Charles Lee wrote on his blog that shares would actually need to be transferred before 7.30 in the morning to the brokerage if investors would want to execute the trades. And some pressure is increasing on the exchange to provide more clarity. As, as I mentioned, investors looking forward to this uh, scheme starting in October, perhaps when people here will be able to buy shares in Shanghai and vice versa. And joining us now in our studios for a bit more clarity on what we know so far is RTHK's Chris Oliver. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Brian. So tell us about it. What's happening? Uh, well, the Shanghai uh, Stock Connect will take a step closer to becoming reality today. Uh, authorities in Shanghai are set to perform a full-day network test with local brokerages that have signed up for this scheme. Uh, later this month, we'll see Hong Kong conduct its own test involving brokerages and the settlement and clearing process. It's all going to be in a, a sort of simulation. Uh, as you know, and this is the news point this morning, uh, concerns remain that the two markets will not align perfectly. Uh, investors... Uh, will face restrictions on the selling of Shanghai shares. Uh, in order to execute the trade that day, they'll have to transfer it to a broker prior to 7.30 in the morning. The implication of that is that it's a different system than what's currently used in Hong Kong, where we have the T plus 2 settlement system, mm -hmm. which uh, allows more flexibility to buy a share, uh, trade it, and then before your broker has to take uh, possession of the stock. Um, still, as the Stock Connect inches closer, uh, analyst research out in the past week uh, has been very bullish about the program and what they see as a catalyst that could re-energize markets. Morgan Stanley said the program, along with recent signs of an economic pickup on the mainland, raises the prospect that China stocks have successfully turned the corner on their four-year bear market. They named the MSCI China as its top investment idea amongst emerging markets. 
They also expect the bull market in Hong Kong's eight shares to continue. For investors uh, looking to get positioned ahead of the launch of this program, which is expected in October, around October 15th, uh, the key thing to ask yourself, according to Morgan Stanley, is what would mainland investors seek to buy that they can't already access in China? Uh, one core idea is to buy companies that have a solid brand that are currently listed only in Hong Kong. That means companies such as AIA, HSBC, Cheng Kong, Sans China, and, of course, the Internet giant uh, Tencent. So what about the uh, volumes? What about the quota, the amount of shares that can be traded? Uh, initially, the, the, the amount of uh, uh, turnover will be actually fairly limited. Uh, it's the share volume from uh, Hong Kong heading into China will be capped at $300 billion. That's for the entire program. And coming uh, from China into Hong Kong will be capped at $250 billion. Uh, there's also a, there's a daily limit on the flows. However, these numbers are just uh, more you know, in line with China's standard policy of uh, you know, putting one toe in the water, and they're expected to be re- relaxed over time. Hmm. Okay, Chris, thanks very much. We'll be watching that one carefully over the next couple of months. And this is Money for Nothing time now, nine minutes before nine o'clock. An interesting segment coming up shortly about crowdfunding with uh, Marianne Hui, an executive director at Fringebacker. That story is next. Our hands are essential, but they also spread germs. To prevent infections, including emerging infectious diseases, we should wash hands thoroughly before touching our eyes, nose and mouth to prevent germs getting into our body through the mucous membranes. Before eating and after going to the toilet, or after sneezing or coughing, use liquid soap or 70 to 80% alcohol-based hand rub to thoroughly clean your hands for at least 20 seconds. Fringebacker launched a couple of years ago as a way to bring crowdfunding to Hong Kong's under-supported arts and culture industry. Founder Marianne Hui says her firm is unique in that it relies on ordinary people, not instructional or institutional investors, to take stakes in these ventures. And we're joined on the program by Marianne Hui. Good morning. Morning. Yes, we don't have the best line, but um, still, we'll we'll um, we'll see how good it can be. Um, it's it's interesting. We know a little bit about crowdfunding, but this is a little bit different, isn't it? Focusing as you do on arts and culture. Um, we started out with art and culture. Yes, um, it was in fact. Um, I'm in direct investment. I've been working in the industry, in the financial industry for quite some time, but I support that crowdfunding model in the U.S. a few years ago, and unfortunately, I don't see anything here in Hong Kong at the time, so we're talking trends and, and people just go with, you know, ideas and everything, and thought it would be very interesting if uh, we can talk with a platform and share some business experience with the people here uh, while they um, look into crowdfunding as an option. So, so is, is some of the money is some of the money you raise going into NGOs, into charities, or is it going into small yes. businesses? Yes, actually, um, we do not have any big um, 
um, restriction as to uh, where the money goes to. It can be sports, it can be, you know, businesses, it can be art and cultural projects, work, um, charitable courses, um, anything. So if I give you $20,000, um, mm-hmm. uh, do, do I get a chance to direct it in a certain place? And do I get any um, future relationship with whatever the entity is that gets the money? All right. Um, let me sum that up um, slightly differently. Um, unlike traditional fundraising where people you know, go to an institute um, to look for, um, I would say, investments into the company or into the business, um, with the financial return model, crowdfunding um, do not have to um, have a financial return model, or in fact, many of them don't have a financial return model. But um, the way crowdfunding works is, is to promote engagement um, with the supporter. So yes, if you're going to support a project in a bigger way, and a lot of times the project would open themselves up and say, you know, we, we want to have a uh, um, a committee, or perhaps they want to invite you to a committee, they want to invite you to certain uh, 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 events, private events, um, pre-screening of a movie. Um, there's a lot of opportunities where the, finance, um, the supporter, um, after they have supported them in a small financial way, can actually get involved in the project. Give us an example of a few projects that people have uh, given money to. Um, for example, there's a, a question that... that that came from our Olympic team in Hong Kong in 2008. She went to Denmark to train herself on a full-time after the Olympics, aiming at the next one. But unfortunately, she fell from her horse and she got her pelvis crushed. So she came back to Hong Kong after she recovered. It was a very uh, miraculous recovery, I would say, because the, I think the medical team thought she probably couldn't walk again, but she was so keen. And this young lady came back to Hong Kong, came to Finch Banker. She told me, Marion, I, I really need funding to get back into some of the smaller races in, the, in, the, in Europe in order to, to go back into the international scene. So she started funding here, and she got herself funded for about half a million Hong Kong dollars in a matter of weeks. Yeah, no. So that is... Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting example. Uh, I, I'm really sorry, Marianne, but it's very difficult uh, to hear what you're saying. We could only understand it was an equestrian after you actually got into the story, and we tell from the context the line is just so weak. I think I'll have to cut it here, and we'll try to talk again sometime when we can get you into our studios. Uh, so, Marianne, thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Three. Welcome, Marianne Hui, Executive Director of Fringebacker Crowdfunding uh, Operation here in Hong Kong. Well, the row between a book publisher and the online retailer Amazon has intensified. Hundreds of authors published a letter urging the company to stop harming their livelihoods. Best-selling writers signed the letter, which appeared in the New York Times, and the company has tried to fight back. The BBC's Andrew Fagg reports. Amazon's dispute with one of its main suppliers, Hachette, over the price of e-books has been raging for months. Malcolm Gladwell and James Patterson are among the signatories to the open letter in which they accuse Amazon of taking their books hostage. They condemn Amazon for delaying delivery, preventing pre-orders and removing discounts on some Hachette titles. But Amazon has hit back immediately publishing the email address of the Hachette chief executive and urging customers to write to him to tell him, in their words, to stop overcharging for e-books. 
Hong Kong has been ranked in the bottom third of territories in the region when it comes to happiness. Taiwan topped the list, while Macau finished bottom. About a thousand people took part. Professor Ho Lok Sang says Hong Kong's low happiness levels demonstrate the need for better life education here. The director of Lingnan University's Center for Public Policy Studies spoke to Wendy Wong. There should be more emphasis on life education, and I know that uh, we have this liberal education uh, curriculum. But I think this personal development uh, uh, element in uh, liberal education should be uh, given more emphasis. And I think, uh, actually, I think life education is actually more important than sex education. And sex education is actually should be just one component of life education. You know, respecting life. You know, uh, and valuing life, and uh, trying to make the most out of one's life, and I think that kind of attitude should be emphasized. But, okay. but why are youngsters in Macau the least happy? Well, I think uh, uh, they have just got too many, you know, gambling halls and so on. You know, now uh, that that is almost the only uh, way out. You know, because it's not a diversified economy. You know, it's all—it's almost entirely focused on on, on the gaming industry, and uh, um, um, and also the the income differences. Uh, you know, the income disparity is extremely high. You know, and uh, uh, among young people, uh, they see a little way of breaking out. You know, and and I think that's the main reason. Professor Holak Sang speaking with RTHK's Wendy Wong. Just briefly, a couple of headlines this morning. Uh in um, in China, in one of the newspapers there, according to a front page commentary, uh, China's second half monetary policy loosening might not be as strong as the first half. And we'd mentioned earlier that uh, Bloomberg was running a story saying that China loosened conditions uh, in the second quarter at the fastest pace in almost two years. Well, let's uh, get a grab of the weather for you today, and uh, then we'll be going out and get to the news. Uh, Looking at sunny periods with isolated showers. Very hot today, 32 degrees as the maximum moderate southwesterly winds. The outlook, showers to be more frequent with thunderstorms in the next few days. Morning Brew coming up next, the news at 9 o'clock.